0: From religion to wrestling, gumbo to grits, politics to poetry, and all things Southern in between, this is Take on the South. Produced by the Institute for Southern Studies and hosted by the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of South Carolina, Take on the South examines the highs and lows of the American South, examines the truths and fictions of the country's most distinctive region, and picks the brains of some of its most accomplished students. To understand the South, you need to take it on, and that's what we'll be doing. Join us as we Take On The South. Welcome to Take On The South. I'm Professor Mark Smith, the Director of the Institute for Southern Studies, and I'll be your host for this episode. In the spring of 2020, the University of South Carolina's Vice President for Research's Office, headed by Professor Julius Friedrichsen, hosted Discover U of SC at the Columbia Metropolitan Convention Center. Discover U of SC is a day dedicated to showcasing the amazing research of the university's graduate and undergraduate students. This year, I was honored to be selected as a research ambassador. It allowed me to talk to a wide range of students and discuss their research. There were some absolutely fascinating topics on display in the form of detailed poster sessions, many in the natural and medical sciences, but a lot too in the social sciences and humanities. Among the students showcasing their original research was Sean Dedman, an undergraduate in political science and history, and also a graduate of the honors college. His research topic caught my eye. It was based on his senior thesis entitled Monuments of Folly, The Persistence of the Lost Cause at the University of South Carolina, which was directed by Professor Joshua Meyer Gutbrod, himself a frequent guest on Take on the South. Sean is here today to share some of his fascinating findings, findings that help us better understand the history of the idea of the lost cause, the meaning and memory of the Civil War, and ideas about race at a major southern university for half a century. Sean, welcome to Take on the South. Thank you so much for having me. It's our pleasure entirely. So before we get into the essence of your thesis, your findings, how you got there, just tell us a bit about yourself. Where are you from? Um, Are you from around here? So,
1: I'm actually from Lexington, South Carolina, so pretty close by, and I've lived in South Carolina all my life, and honestly, going to USC has like always been kind of my dream. Like My parents went there, so when I had the opportunity, I decided I really wanted to go, and I'm really invested in the community here, so when I had an opportunity to do research relating to the community, I jumped on it as quickly as I could.
0: Good, excellent. Well, for our listeners, just give us a quick aerial of what your project was.
1: So my project was analyzing the continuation of belief in the lost cause at the University of South Carolina from 1960 to today. And the lost cause is essentially the belief that the South were the victims in the Civil War and that the North were the aggressors. And a lot of the highlights of the belief and the belief system are downplaying the importance of slavery in causing the Civil War and, once again, victimizing the South. So those are like the primary sets of beliefs that people who support the lost cause hold.
0: So, so when did the idea of the lost cause come about?
1: So it started around close to after the Civil War ended. There was a period where things were rebuilding and there wasn't much talk about it. But then once the Southern Democrats took back over Southern governments, they began to push very hard to kind of forget the way that the South used to be the actual way and they instead highlighted a sort of romanticized version of the antebellum South, with um, movies like The um, Birth of a Nation being a prime example of this, creating this idea that the antebellum South was somehow this great lost history that needed to be celebrated, and the North had taken it away from them.
0: So the key word there in, in in your description would really be forgotten, right? So this is about memory, isn't it, fundamentally? What people remember, sources and sites of amnesia and what they choose to forget as well and if i understand your work correctly which i read with great interest um the alternative causes of the civil war um, are highlighted in this lost cause ideology so that instead of slavery being the 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 essence of or the the machine behind the coming of the civil war it'd be something like tariffs or states rights or something like this Okay, and so the Lost Cause has a long history, a deep origin, and you decided to test the change over time in the Lost Cause ideology. That is to say, how many people adhered to it? How did it change? Did did the demographics change over time? Did the vocabulary change over time? How did you go about testing that? So my primary methods
1: were to study the student newspaper here at the university called the Gamecock from... 1960 to 2007, when it switched over to online, and I kind of cut it off there because there wasn't really much talk about it. I think they stopped doing like students sent in like papers and stuff like that, so there wasn't much talk about it. And then,
0: um, so so the key there is that you're looking at letters to the editor or essays by students at the University of South Carolina published in the Daily Gamecock from sort of 1960 to 2006, 2007. Um, but it's those student-generated, that that's what you're after. You're after their voice. And you kind of stop in 2007 because they you don't get as many of those. Is that correct?
1: Right. And so I excluded um, essays from professors, from people outside of the community, from things that seemed to just be reporting on things that were happening. And I wanted to stick primarily to opinion pieces where you could tell that people were trying to voice how they felt about the issue?
0: Yeah, that, that's very useful. So, how does one go about this? I mean, a that's a lot of information, and then B, you know, how do you how do you arrange the information that you find? So it was a lot of work, and um, Dr. Maya Gutbrod helped me out with
1: this a lot. So I found a nice website that had archives of all of these essay, all of these um, newspapers for this entire time period. And I essentially went highlighted, highlighted the essays that I needed, copied and pasted them into like a blank um, text file, edited them because they were in really bad need of editing because of the PDF format they were in. And then I put them into a database so I could sort them for later and then read them for close reading or do statistical analysis on them.
0: Okay, so, so you've got your texts and you've got your letters from the students and you've arranged them sort of by year. Um, what do you do with the words that you find?
1: So I have two ways of editing the actual or te- er, not editing of um, analyzing the text itself. The first way was doing a um, sentiment analysis. So I sorted the words based on the emotional connotations that they had, and then analyzed the number of emotional words for each connotation, say positive or negative, in each article. And then I traced that with things like their position on the lost cause, the time period and things like that.
0: So can you give us examples of the words that you, you sort of lighted on? What, what, what are the operative words?
1: So some words like heritage, pride were very big. And um, from words like that, you can kind of tell where students were trying to say that they supported the lost cause, not because of anything specific, but simply because they've had pride in it. And so from, being able to pull out just those specific words rather than having to look at the entire article, you can kind of get a sense of like what their meaning underneath is. And then I coupled that with an actual close reading of the text itself for the actual content.
0: So you had to contextualize the words that you found. And was it important that words like confederacy popped up in, in this analysis?
1: It was. I um, analyzed them with and without them in. So like when I did the sentiment analysis section... I excluded words that would have had a connotation to them, but in the way that they use them here, they didn't. Like for example, the word slavery, like everyone you know, was explaining how slavery did or did not relate to the civil war. So everyone was using it. So it's by far one of the largest words, but in the context of this, it didn't really have meaning in that sense. So for the sentiment analysis part, that's gone.
0: Okay, what about words like tariff, did they come up?
1: Tariff surprisingly did not come up that much. People didn't specifically use that word. Uh, So when I went through did the close reading, I found multiple people talking about economics as a reason, but they described it, most of the time they would say, the North was economically dominating the South or something like that, whereas tariffs is not really where they used.
0: Yeah, So they're lacking that degree of specificity, right? Okay, good. So here you have your data, and you've you've kind of arranged them as word clouds to sort of figure out which words resonate Um, What's the best way to to look at this, Sean? Is it by going through decades from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and early, early noughts? Is that the best way to look at this?
1: Yeah, so I found that going by decade was the best way of getting the narrative of what was happening here. Because between each decade, you can see, like, marked changes in the way this conversation plays out.
0: Okay, so, so take us through the decades. This will be an interesting way for, for folks to understand the, the thrust of your research. So in the 1960s are very important because what we have, integration at the University of South Carolina in 1963, really the second inter- integration since it was integrated during reconstruction, but 1963 is an important year. Um, precisely because the university is integrated. What were your principal findings for the 1960s?
1: So one thing that was interesting about the 1960s was, first of all, almost all of the articles were in support of the lost cause and were in reaction to protests by students of color on campus against Confederate iconography, like the Confederate flag, singing Dixie at football games. Um, Once they were on campus, they spoke out against these things and explained how, you know, they were offensive, people shouldn't be doing this, people shouldn't be glorifying the Confederacy and the era of slavery, and these people were like, no, we should be allowed to do this. Why would you come into here, even though they had been forcibly excluded from there? Why should they come into our university and change our way of life? And that was mostly what they were arguing
0: for. Yeah, okay, that that makes perfect sense to me. So in 1961, two years before the integration at the University of South Carolina, Um, Tell us about the uh, marching band performance at halftime. It's a football game, right?
1: Right. So this is actually really interesting. So this was an article describing a marching band performance at a football game for the centennial celebration of the beginning of the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And so essentially, they had gone through and played like 10 or so Confederate wartime songs and like Confederate celebration songs. And the article and no one really takes any kind of critical eye at this this was the norm this is what was expected this was they were pl- they were hoping for this is what they wanted to see
0: yeah so so this event in 61 is really a kind of auditory and visual reaffirmation of the lost cause and it's not really contested is what you're saying right this is just the, n- the normative state but it becomes contested in 1963, because you now have African-American students coming onto campus who are pushing back against this, right? And they're writing to the Gamecock, is that correct? They, um,
1: A few um, students of color do write to, into the Gamecock, but that's mostly in retaliation against students who are saying that their protests should just stop. So that's what's kind of interesting about this decade, is that The white students on campus are largely facilitating all of the conversation within the Gamecock against students of color trying to raise their voices.
0: Uh, 1970s, how would you characterize what you found for the 1970s? Or does it not make any sense to talk about just the 1970s? So the
1: 1970s are an interesting period in that they, while they do largely carry over a lot of the trends from the 1960s of white students on campus complaining about students of color being against Confederate iconography, there's a lot more pushback, not only from students of color, but from white students as well. And so you see the coalition of people opposed to the lost cause broaden a little bit, although it's still mostly people supporting the lost cause writing in.
0: And so do you find the 1980s simply to be um, that kind of trajectory still, or is there something new that happens in the 80s?
1: So The 1980s change and they stay the same. The trajectory does continue, but you do see the language and the way students talk about the Confederacy change drastically in the 1980s.
0: So how how does that language change?
1: So in the 1960s and 70s, students on both sides were largely talking about vague, you're giving vague examples about why the Confederacy was good or bad. But in the 1980s, they get very specific talking about whether or not Abraham Lincoln himself was racist, the validity of saying that the lost cause or the civil war was about slavery, about economics. A lot of the detail arguments start in the
0: 1980s. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, and why do you think that is that the, the, there's a greater degree of specificity in the, the conversation about this? So I think there's a couple
1: parts to why this is. The first part is that I think the arguments on both sides kind of scaled up with each other. So as one argument, as say arguments against the lost cause became more specific in detail, then students supporting the lost cause had to go into detail as well since their arguments wouldn't really cut it anymore. And also, I think you see an overall like shift in the culture of the South during the 1980s as a lot of Southerners begin to switch over from Democrat to Republican. And that core Southern Democrat foundation kind of uproots for at least a decade. And so that heritage of like Southern Democrats being secessionists kind of gets uprooted a little bit. And so you can't really rely on that. So instead, they had to shift towards arguing about specific facts.
0: Yeah, I think that this 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 question of specificity is absolutely fascinating. Because one of the one of the endless complaints is that well, students, students become dumber over time, right? You know, this is kind of what, what grandfathers say, like, not my generation, we were but much better read. What you're showing, in actual fact, is that the skills of argumentation, the empirical basis of the argumentation, actually improves over time. And I think that's a healthy thing. If you're going to have an argument, make sure you have the evidence, and you're showing that they have increasingly specific evidence regardless of their particular stance on these questions, right? Very interesting. Um, take us through the 90s. Is the 90, is that a relevant decade here?
1: So, the 90s are interesting. So, the 1990s are highlighted by the lead-up to the eventual takedown of the Confederate flag from the State House. Mm-hmm. And so, with the eventual coming of the end of, like, um, institutionalized Confederate support in a very visual sense, you see a lot more individualization of the argument. So it no longer becomes easy for students to just say, yeah, this is something that the state should do because the state should be honored by their Confederate past. Instead, students rely more on their personal experiences. So you see a lot more articles about how people's great-great-grandfathers fought in the Civil War and they couldn't have been racist because they didn't have slaves. Therefore, it's okay for me personally to use the Confederate flag. And so students opposed the Confederate flag went down this line of argument as well, especially students of color who um, were able to give insight on you know, what life was like for someone who wasn't a white person in the South during the 1800s and that that's not the same thing.
0: And there was a great deal of national attention paid to South Carolina during this decade for precisely the, the reasons that you give. Do you think that national attention helped shape some of the discourse that people found or that you found in the Daily Gamecock?
1: I certainly think it did. And a lot. some articles explicitly mentioned, like, for example, the NAACP's boycott of the state of South Carolina. That was a big turning point in the discussion. And I think what it did was it kind of drove away the um, easy arguments that um, people supporting the Confederate flag could give of like, oh, this is just my heritage. Well, now this is a big national issue and it's no longer just a South Carolina thing. So they can't rely on that. And I think that really drove the argument.
0: Yeah. I, so I think you're entirely right. There's a kind of exporting of Southern issues to the nation as a whole. That then becomes a question for the nation as a whole. So um, any, any points you want to make about the 2000s? Uh, I know you stop in 2006 and seven, but any, any signatures there?
1: So surprisingly, there's actually more articles in the 2000s overall than there were in like most of the other decades. But um, it was mostly a continuation of the 90s, even though it was after the Confederate flag is taken down from the Capitol dome and moved to the monument in the state house. So it's mostly people discussing their personal experiences and mostly just continuation of that.
0: So we've been talking about um, people of color and and whites. And I think from my reading of your your very interesting and very well-done thesis, um, there is a kind of qualification to this, isn't there? Has it to do with shifting demographics of the student population at the University of South Carolina? Um, You get people from outside of the state increasingly coming in, to enroll uh, at the University of South Carolina. Is there, and they, they might not be from the South, they might be from the North. Um, did you did you do any research on how those demographics might shift or talk the, the sentiment that you're seeing in the Daily Gamecock?
1: I actually did not do any research on that, but that is something I'm hoping to expand upon if I were to further this research, because I think that's a very key possible interaction because Um, um, complaints about Northern students from students who supported the Lost Cause were very common. Like There were many arguments where a student would say the Confederacy was about slavery, and then someone would say, well, you're a Northerner, you just don't understand. And so judging how much that shifted, because there is a clear shift in the number of students who support the Lost Cause, I mean, I think I put in my thesis a study in the Gamecock where over 55% of students supported the Confederate flag being taken down in the 2000s. So there is a clear shift in seeing how much that is students changing their minds or new students coming in who challenge the norms would be very interesting.
0: Yeah, I think it would be absolutely fascinating. Did you find any gender distinctions?
1: I actually didn't find any. Um, Essentially, most um, articles, when they did specify the author's gender, there wasn't a really clear distinction. There were plenty of women, men on both sides of the argument, which I thought was kind of interesting since... Generally, there are gender divides in most political science-based issues.
0: Yeah, so, so when you look at this, and you, you've, you finish it and you put it down for a while, uh, do you come away with a, a sense of optimism from your research? Which is to say, it, I don't mean to put words into your mouth here, but as I read this, it seemed to me that people argue, they do it respectfully for the most part, um, and they change their minds. And that is the power of civil discourse, isn't it? Especially when the evidence becomes even more precise and more directed. Um, In a way, that's a good thing, isn't it?
1: I think there are some positives you can take away from this research. Like, for example, as to what you said, one article that stuck out to me was a student who was describing his great-great-grandfather's experience in the Civil War, but still arguing that the Civil War was about slavery and simply that you know, a lot of poor white people had been tricked into believing in racial superiority and things like that by wealthy planters. So you see people still trying to maintain their own, you know, family innocence and things like that, but accepting um, that slavery was an important factor in the Civil War and that the lost cause isn't actually factually accurate. So you do see some people actually changing their minds. One thing that I think is kind of problematic that you can also sense from this research is the individualization because it's a lot harder to change individualized beliefs than it is to change into institutionalized ones so we can take the confederate flag off of the state house dome but it's hard to fix the argument of well my great-great-grandfather fought in the civil war so i want the confederate flag it's hard to argue through that one and i think that that becoming the most prominent argument is a little worrisome
0: that's a very interesting point. So the, the individuation of this is the sticking point, right? So people can concede, look, the larger point, it wasn't tariffs, it wasn't states, right? Slavery was the cause of the Civil War, or the principal cause of the Civil War. However, my own personal history matters, and it kind of pushes, pushes, pushes me into a position where I will still defend the particular, even though I will relinquish the general, I think it's a very interesting point, one that's very alive in politics today. And of course, this is a a very happy marriage between history and political science, which is precisely what your degrees are in. Um, I can't think of a better example of actually how this might work. Um, If you were to do this again, or rather, if you had another year to do it, what would you add to it besides the demographic stuff that we've discussed? Uh, Would you you, you change your methodology? What else would you do? So I think I would spend more time on my
1: sentiment analysis. I think I did it, and it's very good, but I think there's more data that I could dig out of it. I think if I had more time to like look into the word clouds, put more attention on how they relate to the text they come from, and doing a better job of like implementing it, I think that would be a very interesting way of continuing the research.
0: Yeah, I think so too. Um, how about this? I'll just float an idea with you. Uh, I'm really interested in comparative analysis. If you had to take another student newspaper from another university, where might you look?
1: So I've actually kind of thought about this a little bit, just as like a thought experiment kind of thing. I think taking a student newspaper from, say, a school in the north or from a school like the University of Georgia would be very interesting. Because Georgia has had a very similar history, or possibly the University of Alabama, just another university in the south, state school had a huge history with civil rights movement, seeing the change there, and then in the North, seeing whether or not they went through similar discussions, or if there just weren't any, and it's just not an issue for them.
0: Yeah, I mean, ultimately, if you receive funding for this, you could do the same analysis for pretty much every state, right? And I wonder if it would be a North-South divide, um, and whether or not places like Kentucky, you know, would have a border state sentiment attached to it. all very interesting and, and full of potential, which of course leads me to um, the question, you know, what's next for Sean Detman? So my plans um,
1: now that I've graduated are to get my master's degree in um, public policy from the University of Virginia. And then I'm mostly going to see where that leads me, but I'm very excited to start a master's degree there.
0: So you've been accepted into the MA program at the University of Virginia for public policy. Yes, sir. Well, congratulations, Sean. That's a fiercely competitive field, and it only remains for me to say, thank you, Sean Dedman. You've really been a fabulous insight to Southern Mind in the last half of the 20th century. Thank you for being on Take on the South.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: was our take on the south let us know yours find us on facebook twitter and instagram at u of sc south take on the south is produced by matt simmons of the institute for Southern studies special thanks to professor dave garner of the university of south carolina school of music for composing our music tune in next time for another take on the south